start in? Okay, thank you very much. Well, well listen, uh, let, let me just uh, say, um, I, uh, as Clark has mentioned, I'm at Trinity Western University, uh, and uh, I've been teaching philosophy, teaching ethics, political philosophy, <coughs> philosophy of religion, Christian apologetics, so they mentioned, also uh, a course called Culture and Christianity. I've been doing that a little bit in the last few years as well. And I, I've really had a good time doing this. I love to teach, and I, uh, as I said, I love ideas, and I love students, and I love working back and forth, and I learn a lot through it. I'm always stimulated by it. And about uh, a number of years back, a few years back, our older son was out in Saskatchewan for the summer working out there. We got talking on the phone, and he said, Dad, I came across a, a book. Uh, and and uh, he says, written by a fellow by the name of Sam Harris. Anybody ever heard that name? He says it's called The Fear of Faith. I'm not sure if you've heard of the book or not. Some of you probably have. And he began telling me about this book and, and, and what the book was about. And he says, Sam Harris is a, a person who's called a new atheist. And I began thinking the term new atheism, what's, what's new about atheism? It's been with us for a long, long time. And, and I began thinking to myself, well, what are atheists saying? And I learned a little bit more from my son. I, I went ahead and got that book and worked my way through that book and some others like it. Uh, and I began to realize the questions we have to ask about this new thing, because this, this was, was an, a movement, an idea that was really gaining massive attention in North America and around the world, Western Europe for sure, and gaining quite a few followers and had a number, number of big names associated with it, names like Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins, some of you probably know that name, Christopher Hitchens, how many of you know that name? He died a couple of years ago. Um, Daniel Dennett, Dr. Daniel Dennett, a, a philosopher, American philosopher, very uh, passionate atheist. These are some of the bigger names associated with New Atheism, but there are others as well. Um, and, and they have been so influential because of their best-selling books and the number of speeches they've been giving around North America to large audiences, university crowds and elsewhere, that they've actually changed the discussion about God and about faith and about religion, the way religion is viewed by many people. Uh, and and uh, what I began to realize is they have a very, no matter what the differences may be between people who call themselves new atheists, have a very common significant theme that runs through them all. And that, that is this, as I began reading the material, that's what, that's what really got me thinking about this. The common theme was this, new atheists are not merely defending atheism and, and, and the way that atheism has always been defended. For a, for a long, long time. Their message is not only that religion is wrong, religion is mistaken, um, as atheists always, always believe, their message is that religion is what? Can you finish it for me? Dangerous. Religion is dangerous, exactly right, which is, which is a whole different ballgame. <coughs> it is dangerous. So now it's not just a matter of saying, well, if you want to believe it, that's, that's fine, go ahead. I, I was used to that. Uh, we don't believe it. You want to believe it, go ahead. This group is saying, no, no, this is a dangerous viewpoint. Uh, and, and in fact, in the stronger forms, the, 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 the thinking is this, we'd be better off without it. And in the very strongest form, the eradication of religion may be the key to the very survival of the human race. And I thought, this is very, very strong stuff. Why is anybody saying this? Well, let me read you how Sam Harris begins his book, that one I talked about just a moment ago, <clears throat> The Fear of Faith. Has anybody here read the book, by the way? The Fear of Faith by Sam Harris? If you have, well, this would be, uh, Scott, you have? Okay, so this will be a repeat for, for Scott. Uh, bear with us, uh, my friend, and everybody else, will, uh, everybody else will hear it for the first time. But here's how the book begins. It says, the young man boards the bus as it leaves the terminal. Beneath his overcoat, he is wearing a bomb. His pockets are filled with nails, ball bearings, and rat poison. The bus is crowded and headed for the heart of the city. The young man takes his seat beside a middle-aged couple. 
He will wait for the bus to reach his next stop. The couple at his side appears to be shopping for a new refrigerator. I'll skip a little bit here and there. But then he says, the next stop comes into view. The bus doors swing. New, new passengers have taken the last remaining seats and begun gathering in the aisle. The bus is now full. The young man smiles. With the press of a button, he destroys himself, the couple at his side, 20 others on the bus. The nails, the ball bearings, and rat poison <coughs> ensure further casualties on the street. The young man's parents soon learn, well, he, goes, he finishes that paragraph by saying, all has gone according to plan. The young man's parents soon learn of his fate. Although saddened to have lost a son, they feel tremendous pride at his accomplishment. They know he has gone to heaven, prepared the way for them to follow. He has also sent his victims to hell for eternity. It is a double victory. The neighbors find the event a great cause for celebration. They honor the young man's parents by giving them gifts of food and money. These are the facts, says Sam Harris. This is all we know for certain about the young man. Is there anything else that we can infer about him on the basis of his behavior? Well, and then he started asking questions. Was this young man popular in school? Was he rich or poor? Was he of low or high intelligence? He says his actions just leave no clue. Did he have a college education? Did he have a bright future as a mechanical engineer? His behavior is simply mute on questions of this sort. And then Sam Harris asks this question. Why is it then so easy, so trivially easy, to guess the young man's religion? And he goes on to talk a little bit about beliefs, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But skipping a little bit, then he says this. Our situation is this. Most of the people in this world believe that the creator of the universe has written a book. We have the misfortune, he says, of having many such books on hand, each making an exclusive claim as to its infallibility. Each of these texts urges its readers to adopt a variety of beliefs and practices, some of which are benign, many of which are not. The central tenet, this is Sam Harris now speaking, the central tenet of every religious tradition is that all others are mere repositories of error, or at best, dangerously incomplete. Intolerance is thus intrinsic to every creed. Once a person believes, really believes, that certain ideas can lead to eternal happiness, he cannot tolerate the possibility that the people he loves might be led astray by unbelievers. Certainty about this, about the next life, he says, is simply incompatible with tolerance in this one. Now, Sam Harris began writing that book. Anybody, anybody can guess the day that he started writing that book? Pull out his computer and began typing. September 12th, September 12th, 2001, okay? 17 years ago now, just a few days, more than 17 years ago. Uh, he was deeply provoked by what happened at 9-11. He writes as a critic of religion, including Christianity. His reasoning in the book is, is very straightforward. It's probably a little oversimplified, but his reasoning in the book is just this. If young men were slaughtering young people, or slaughtering people, because they believed their religion commanded them to do it or encouraged them to do so, then perhaps religion, with its outdated and pernicious superstitions, is what should be eradicated to ensure a better world. So, you see, when you think of it, to, to many people, maybe many of us in this room and, and others in our churches all through, all through Canada and North America, the idea of the end of faith, that sounds like a lament, doesn't it? Now, did I say his book is called The Fear of Faith? You did. That's a mistake. And you know why I said that? Is because I was thinking of calling mine the fear mm. of faith in, re, in, in response. His book is called The End of Faith. 
Some of you may know that already. You may have checked it already and said, Jay really got that wrong. <laughs> that's kind of funny. I hadn't got it down here to my notes till right now, and I realized I got to correct that one. The book is called The End of Faith. But uh, my point right here is to, to many people, the end of faith might sound like a lament, right? To Harris, what's it sound like? A great step forward for humanity. This would be what we need to do. He, I, I think Harris is realistic enough to know it probably is not going to happen. But if it would happen, it would be a phenomenal thing. Okay? And he's simply one author among a growing chorus of voices expressing a new, deep fear of religion and faith, which at times is sometimes is blended with hostility and, and superstition. That's the, that's the issue. So, so look at, let's look for a moment at the, at the, the chart. There's a number of charges. In this book here that I worked through, I, I put a number of them in, and we just kind of worked through them one by one. Um, but let me let me get into one that is really where's this uh, here uh, the um, yeah the, the the main the like the mother of all charges when it comes to the new atheist everything hangs around this one and that is simply this that religion breeds violence the one we've already alluded to common theme all new critics of religion and let me just let me just, just ask you how, how 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 do you think this how do you think this charge goes how does this charge go well Harris starts with the word beliefs. And he says, it's all about this word right here, beliefs. And he says, beliefs are at the heart of religion. Think about the power of beliefs. And he says some things that maybe you've said in the past. He says, suppose you believe that you are a member of a chosen people. You're living in an evil culture that is turning your children away from God. Suppose you really believe that. Suppose you believe that you will be rewarded with an eternity of unimaginable delights by dealing death to these infidels. Suppose you really believe that. Okay? He says, guess what? If you believe those things, flying a plane into a building is scarcely more than a matter of being asked to do it. In fact, Harris says, I can't believe there's not way, way more of this happening, given the fact that people actually believe the things we're talking about here. And he says, to see that the problem really is with religion and not something else, because that's what drives people like Harris nuts, is when people say, well, I know people do these things, but it's not because of religion. He says, this drives me nuts to hear that. He said, we have to ask the question, why? Question kids ask, right? We need to get back and ask that question. He says, let's ask this question. Why do religious terrorists do the thing they do, the things they do? Why does an abortion clinic bomber do what he does? And Harris goes into this one a bit. He says, why would a young man, a young father, who has never, he says, been personally wronged by an abortion provider, why would that young man put himself at great personal risk of maybe jail, maybe even execution in the United States by, by the state that he's in, why would he do that? By blowing up an abortion clinic and killing all those inside. Why would you do that? He says the answer is actually quite simple. In fact, it's obvious, he says. The answer is because the abortion bomber actually believes what he says he believes. Then he turns to 9-11 and says, let's ask ourselves, why would 19 quite well-educated, middle-class young men give up their lives and their future hopes for the privilege of killing thousands of civilians they'd never met? Why? Why would they do that? Harris says again, the answer is just painstakingly easy. It's because they believed they would go straight to paradise for doing so. And he goes on and talks about it further on. He says, and you know what? The challenge, the, the challenge is, is, uh, is, is a little, uh, uh, we need to add these. He said, it's not any one specific religion that is viewed as the problem. It's religion per se, religion itself, not any one particular religion. Why? Well, because in religion, and here's kind of the heart and soul of the matter. In religion, people believe who? Who is giving them orders? We all know, don't we? God. <coughs> God is giving you the orders to do whatever, you, uh, whatever it is you do. He says, when God gave, you, gave people the orders, the rest of us are absolutely helpless to try to convince them they're wrong. What kind of argument are you going to bring to someone 
who really believes that God told him to do X, whatever X is. If God told him to do it, bring all the logic, all the argumentation you want. It's going to fall completely flat because you're not going to out-Trump God, okay? What can I, I can't resist. Even Trump can't out-Trump God, okay? That's not in my notes, okay? Uh, that, one, that, one, uh, that flash of insight just came to me. Um, for, furthermore, here, here's what Harris goes a bit further. The situation, he says, is actually more serious than some people seem to think. And here's where he gets in, I, I mentioned before, some, how in his strongest form. He says, our very survival as a human race may be at stake. He says, thanks to advances in technology in the past 50, 60, 70 years, especially in the art of war, he says, our religious neighbors, he says, are now armed with chemical weapons, biological weapons, nuclear weapons, and of course, you know, they're, they're, they're perfectly happy to use them. The fact that they will die on the attack is completely irrelevant. That, that will not be any kind of a motivation not to do so. And Harris just says, look at anyone who is not afraid of this prospect has not, simply has not given the matter due attention. If you're not afraid of it, you, it's because you haven't thought about it. He actually puts forward a little scenario where he says, let's just imagine the United States learned that an extremist group somewhere in the Middle East, maybe they knew the country, but that's all they knew, had acquired a nuclear device, and they were planning on using it in the United States. Let's suppose they, 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 that, that, that was what happened. And, and, and they became aware of it, but they didn't know where it was. What do you think they're, they would do? He says, and this isn't because there are a bunch of bad people in the United States. He says they would act in, in their survival, in their, in their interests, and he says there would be a phenomenal... Uh, uh, phenomenal action taken, phenomenal military action taken. Probably nuclear weapons would be used in the whole bit because of this. And so Harris says, what's the solution to the whole thing? The solution is actually pretty easy. Ready for the solution? Words like God, Allah, Allah, they need to go the same way that words like Apollo and Baal have gone. We use those words, but they don't really mean too much of it to, 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 to too many people anymore, do they? That's what has to happen here. That's the solution. Well, what do we say to something like this? When I, when I read this at first, I mean, I, I have to admit, I was fairly stunned by it when I read it. And I really listened to it carefully. And I thought, this is not all complete made up. This is not all complete baloney. There's, there's a kernel of truth here. And I'm not sure how many of you have ever said, have you ever said these words that I've sometimes said? I even said it to my wife at times. I said, honey, look at this. Can you see what happened over here? Can you believe how stupid religion sometimes makes people? You ever said that? Mm-hmm. I hate to admit it, but I said it. And, and, and the occasional time, I, I wasn't even referring to somebody from some other religion. I'm referring to somebody in our own ranks. I, what? Now, is that, even I'm saying that. Well, you can see where Sam Harris is coming from. But this becomes a very serious charge against Christianity, against all religious forms, really, but against Christianity. And I thought, how do we as Christians respond to it? So when I began thinking of it, I went to our dean uh, at uh, the division I was working in. I brought him a number of articles, a couple of books. I showed, laid them on the table. I said, look at all this stuff. Well, Howard, look at this. I said, we need to respond to this, don't we? I said, I've got a sabbatical coming. What do you think about me responding to this? And Howard, absolutely, go for it. Let's do it. So when I began writing this, I had no idea where I was going to go. I took my sabbatical, and I said, I've got to think this through. I, I found one little book written by Alistair McGrath, which I really recommend, called The Dawkins Delusion. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. And, and Alistair McGrath responded with a small little book called The Dawkins Delusion, which is quite a helpful little book, by the way. I found that one little book, and after that, I didn't really have anything else to go on. And I began reading stuff on it. And, 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 and also, I began bouncing this off students in class. And if you're a teacher, you get to do this. And actually, you would be amazed at the things I've learned, things that I knew very little about. 
by walking into a classroom, especially for the graduate level students, and bounce, throwing out to the students and saying, what do we think about this? Can I put you in little groups and you tell me where we're going to go with this? And, and um, so I did that first of all. Let me tell you the four things that came back from my students. Three from graduate level students and the fourth one from some undergrads. And because I said, I, I laid it all out and I said, how would you respond to this? Okay. Uh, and they did some reading on it as well, and then we had a different group discussion. Well, the first one here, the, the, the first response that I want to put on the table came from a, uh, under, uh, a graduate students, in other words, master's degree students, and this is what they said. They were, well, we'll call it the test laboratory response. Okay, anybody know where I'm going here? They said the first thing we need to think about is that we actually have places in the world where the eradication of religion has already been tried. Okay, so we're not, this, is, this isn't a brand new thought. Well, that's good thinking here. And I said, and the question you have to ask for there, there is that my students said is, has it ended the violence there? Has the violence all come to an end because they were able to eradicate religion, or at least they tried very hard to re eradicate religion? Consider Russia, China, Romania, Vietnam. Has, has violence ended there? Well, there's a fellow named Mike Pierce who wrote a book on this issue, and he, he makes a statement in, in his book. The statement is this. He says, possibly the only thing with a worse record for violence than religion is irreligion. And, and, and the, the, this has been documented over and over by different people as well. That was a test laboratory response. We'll think a little bit more about that later on. But, but there, there is, there, this, this idea it has a lot going for it. We need to think about it more. We'll plumb the depths of it a little bit more. That's the first thing my students said. Second one is this, what we'll call the root problem response. They said this. They said, you know what? Violence seems to pop up, it seems to occur, both where people are religious and where they're not. And I thought, that's interesting, so what are you getting at with that? They say, well, what, what that means then is that religion is not the common denominator here. The common denominator is not religion because it happens where people are religious and where, where people are not. The common denominator is something else. What's the common denominator? You know what the common denominator is? People. And we began thinking a little bit about this, and I, I thought back to something I read in G.K. Chesterton. Have you read, some of you read a little bit in G.K. Chesterton? Phenomenal writer, some of them to really, really learn from. Uh, the thing I always think of with G.K. Chesterton is that if you ask many Christians today, who is the Christian writer who has influenced you the most? People will often answer who? Anybody? C.F. Lewis. We have Eli here, who is some of an expert in Lewis. He did a Ph.D. dissertation on C.F. Lewis, just defended it, just finished it a few months ago. Uh, and, 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 that's, and I, I might say that too, C.S. Lewis, he's influenced me greatly. If you ask C.S. Lewis, who is the greatest influence in Christian influence in his life, you know what his answer is? G.K. Chesterton. That's, that his, that's his answer. Well, G.K. Chesterton once took part in a, in a contest put, put, put forward by the London Times. Some of you may have heard about this. They, were, they contacted a number of quite a prominent journalists, and they said, we'd like everybody to, to submit an essay under the title, What's Wrong with the World? Okay, now I'm not sure what you would write, what kind of essay you'd write under that. And so, so they said, write, write your essays, submit them, and, and there's going to be some money for the winner for this. So uh, these journalists all got together and submitted their essays. Well, G.K. Chesterton submitted his essay. I've got the whole thing memorized. Anybody know what it was? Yes, his I essay was this. Dear like Sirs, I am, yours, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> that was the essay, and guess what? He won. He won the contest and took the money okay, for, for that kind of essay. And, and really, it's become, it, it, it really, really got to the heart of it. Because you know what he's saying? The problem with the world is right here. That's where the problem is. Okay? 
Well, that's what the students were getting at here. And, and the evidence of it is that, that when you see religion popping up, it does pop up where people are religious, and you see what, what sure appear to be religious causes, but you also see violence where people are not religious, sometimes even going working against religion. Okay, you see, you see that as well. Uh, I remember being at a talk by Charles Taylor down in, I think it's San Diego, when he received the Templeton Award. You know who Charles Taylor is, Canadian philosopher? Uh, quite a guy. And uh, this room was packed full, huge, two, about 2,000 people in this room. <clears throat> he gave a lecture, people at the end began asking questions, and well, somebody asked a question about religion causing violence. And you could tell Taylor had had, what had up, to, up to the eyelids with that question. Mm -hmm. And he just said, don't you know that, that violence is, is caused by people who are religious and by people who are not? He just said, shook his head, enough, went on to the next question. As far as he was concerned, that settled the whole issue right there. Because it showed that the common denominator, no, common denominator was not religion, it was people. Uh, and that's what the students got on with that. We'll think a bit more about that. I want to come back to that one too, because that's really key. The third one by the students is this. And I, I have to admit, I never thought of this one uh, until the students came forward. And, and here, here they, they said, we need to ask this question. If you want to eliminate religion, how do you propose to do it? How are you going to go about doing this? So they said, we can think of about two different ways. Number one is to persuade people out of it. To talk to them and show them it's all baloney, it's all false. And this, my students said, that, that'd be fine with us. Let's dialogue and hope the truth wins out on that issue. That's one way. But if you don't choose to, to persuade, what's your other option? Legislate. And they said, of course, that, that would lead to more violence, which is ironic at best. But here's the other weird thing about that. You know what history shows us? That when governments tend to, uh, I mean, when governments try to outlaw religion, what usually happens to the number of Christians in that community, in that jurisdiction? Does it go down, stay the same, or go up? It goes up. It goes up. So, see, I think, first of all, it goes down a little bit, and then it starts to go up, 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 up. And one of the best examples is China. After 70 years of enforced anti-religious policy, they've got probably the largest number of Christians of any country in the world. I think by their own figures, it's, well, it's at least 100 million. Some people say 120, 130 million. And I remember talking with a young man from China, and he was the most amazing young guy. And he was kind of laughing about it. He says, Cause look, at, look, what the policy, look what the policy was. The policy was, we come to you, and we ask you, we, we, we tell you, you need, you need to renounce your Christianity. If you renounce it, that's fine, you're gone. The, the, the issue settled. If you don't, we ask you again, we put pressure on you, and eventually, we, we, we start, we start uh, using uh, uh, tougher, much more harsh means. Well, one thing they would do is they would transfer people around the country to different places to what they call re-education camps. Well, look what you're doing there now. You've taken the most passionate, committed Christians, ones who are not willing to renounce, no matter what. You transfer them around the world, I mean around the country, to different re-education camps, and there you are there working beside people, and they say, why are you here? I'm here because I'm a Christian, let me tell you about it. And around the world, it was like the best evangelism program you could have gotten. Uh, and the government did it. And so by the time the end, you had all these Christians all around the country moved there by, by the government, and you had a huge number of Christians in, in, in place. Uh, and and that, that was the third response they made. How, how would we do it? And here's a, a fourth one brought by a number of undergrad students. Um, and and they, they, they brought this one out, which I find to, to be quite insightful on their part. After discussing this in groups, they said this, well, if we're looking at religion being the cause of the violence, it looks to us like pretty much any ideal, the pursuit of almost any ideal, whatever it be, maybe, can be twisted by, hum by human beings and turned into acts or actions of violence. They said, for example, liberty. Liberty can be twisted and turned into a source of violence. Equality can be turned. Fraternity. Think of the French Revolution. Four million dead 
Name and, and, and fought under those three main principles right there. Liberty, equality, fraternity, those three. Four million dead in the French Revolution. Re, 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 revolution. How, how about ethnicity, nationalism? Can that be twisted into a cause of violence? Well, think about Rwanda. Mm -hmm. 800,000 people hacked, macheted to death in, in the name of ethnic cleansing. No, no religious uh, motivation there. How about atheism itself? I remember one student saying, ironically, even atheism itself can be twisted and used by human beings to be a cause of violence. How about Russia, China, Vietnam, Romania? We'll talk a bit about that a little bit later on. And of course, religion can as well. It can be twisted and turned into something that causes violence. But see, think about this. What that means, if the students are right about that, that would mean then that the problem is not any one of these ideals, is it? Any one of the ones we're talking about. And in fact, for that reason, it's kind of silly to lash out at any one of those as if it were the true cause. What it means then is we're back to the first one, or the second one again, the root problem. Uh, because it the, the, means the problem is actually with human beings who are there, no matter if you, if you took religion away. Because human beings are the ones we are able to twist and turn any wonderful ideal, how wonderful it may be, into something, some, some kind of act of violence uh, in, in the world. Well, that's what the student student said. Let me tell you where I went in my own thinking on this. No, number five. I'll put it up here, but it was really the first one for me. Here's what I, as I thought about this issue, I sat and I read about on Harris and I read Dawkins and uh, some of Christopher Hitchens, a little bit of Daniel Dennett, and I read about this and I thought about this issue and I thought, and the, the issue, the charge is the religion is the, the problem, the villain in the world that's causing all this violence. And I, first thing that caught my attention is that most of the religious people I meet are actually decent people. They're quite kind people. They're, they're normally law-abiding, usually quite generous with their time and their money. But even more than that, virtually all of the ones I meet are just as shocked and outraged by acts of violence done in the name of religion and cruelty as anybody else in society. And, and in fact, I find most of them actually being a bit offended at being lumped in with the same group as the people who are carrying out these violent acts. And when I say, when I talk about religious people, I'm not even talking about people of our own faith tradition, Christianity here. A good friend of mine was in, living in Pakistan on 9-11. And, and he told me later on, he was just a few days after that, and he recalled this vividly. He was riding in a train in that country a few days later after 9-11, after and there were very conservative, very religious Muslims all around him on that train. As you could tell by, by the garb they were wearing. And the topic of discussion on the train was 9-11. Everybody was talking about it together. And he said there was unanimous and strong agreement by everybody on that train. Those attacks were horrific and they were wrong. In other words, they were condemning them in the very same terms as my friend, a Christian. Okay, now because we know, we know that not everybody in the world was. Because we know there's some people who were celebrating. We know that. But on that train, there was all, all these Muslims on there and they were condemning it in the same way. So it, it just made me ask this question. What's going on here? How can people like Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens and others point the finger at religion as the cause of the violence and cruelty, and yet religious people, the vast majority, are outraged by the very acts of violence. I thought, something really odd is going on here. And then I thought, okay, there's a basic fact, a basic idea that, that actually uh, uh, Alistair McGrath put me onto. I wonder if you've thought about this. And it is this, Alistair McGrath pointed out, and I began to see this as well. In the writings of the new atheists, here's what you often find. You see what we have up here? A confusion of extremists within various groups, particularly Christianity, with the mainstream. See, anybody know, you know what I'm getting at with that? Okay. Well, as, 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 as McGrath said, the critics tend to treat extremists within various religious groups as the mainstream. 
okay? Now, this is really a serious matter. It might sound like a small matter at first, but as I began to think about it, I, began to come, I came to the conclusion, this is a very serious matter. It's very flawed reasoning, because, because here's, here's the, 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 the fact <coughs> of the matter. Every group has its extremists. Every group has people who you might call weirdos, whatever you want to call it, fringe people. Some people call them crackpots. There's all these names for people, okay? But there are people who are on the edges. People who don't speak for the group, although sometimes they act as though they do. They don't represent the group, although the media will often, is, all, is often pretty happy to give them the microphone and, and, and spread their comments around the world. In fact, they're often an embarrassment to the group. Every, pretty well, every group has these, okay? And, and, and actually, these are people who Richard Dawkins loves to quote. He talks about Jerry Falwell in his book, uh, who, after 9-11, made one fairly unfortunate statement about AIDS. He said the reason 9-11 happened is, be, is because uh, the United States has allowed gay people to function, and that's brought AIDS to us, uh, and, and that's connected with 9-11. And, he, he, and, and to his credit, he, he took such flack for that comment. This is Jerry Falwell Sr., not the current Jerry Falwell, okay? Um, that the, he actually retracted that statement, which I don't think is in the book by Richard Dawkins, but, but, that, but the other part is in there. Here's some other stuff that's in there. A person named Gary Potter, maybe you haven't heard of him. He is with a group called Catholics for Political Action. In Dawkins' book, he mentions that Gary Potter has said this, when the Christian majority takes over this country, there will be no satanic churches. There will be no more talk of rights for homosexuals. Pluralism will be seen as immoral and evil. The state will not permit anyone the right to practice evil. I'd like to know who gets to define that. But ask yourself this. As a Christian, is that your position? Is that what you'd be saying? Okay, well, that's what Gary Potter said. And Dawkins has him in there representing Christianity. Another one he's got in there. He takes a little time on this one. Fred Phelps. Have you heard his name? He died a little mm -hmm. bit ago with a church in Kansas called Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, and, and he would have his group out there at, vari the, at various funerals. He had, he had his group out there at Martin Luther King's widow's funeral, Coretta Scott King. And they were, they were holding up signs, okay, picketing. And the signs would say th these words on them. God hates fags and fag enablers. God hates Coretta Scott King. He's now tormenting her with fire and brimstone. Now that holding these up at the funeral, okay? And Richard Dawkins has that in there. Another, another one, uh, a fellow called, his name is Randall Terry with a group called Operation Rescue. A very, very, uh, uh, very adamant, very passionate pro-life group, I guess you'd call them. Speaking to abortion providers. He said this, when I and people like me are running this country, you'd better flee, because we're going to find you. We're going to try you. We're going to execute you. I mean every word of it. I will make it part of my mission. I'm wondering, is that your position? Is that my position? Does that represent who I am? Uh, it doesn't represent me. These, none of these come close to representing what I, the message I would communicate to our world. In fact, I don't see how it comes close to representing the God of the Bible. Read the book of Jonah to find out how, how God feels about people. Uh, who, who have done things wrong. God is itching, he's begging for them to return. And as soon as they do, he wants to forgive. So much so that Jonah knew that, and Jonah didn't want to go there. That's why he didn't want to go there. He said, I knew you're the kind of God who wants to forgive. And if they, if they even hinted at wanting to forgive, you'd forgive them. I didn't want that to happen. That's the kind of God I read about in, in, the, in the Bible. And there's other, st other stuff like this. And the problem is this, that to disregard this distinction between mainstream here and extremists over here, to disregard that, to paint everybody with the same brush. You know what the problem is? You end up misrepresenting the views, the beliefs of the vast majority of people you're supposedly <coughs> talking about. You see what I'm saying? You misrepresent the views. Uh, in fact, how many of you are familiar with what's called the straw man fallacy? Mm -hmm. You familiar with that term? 
The straw man tells you, what is it? Can you anybody tell me? You know, anybody, and just, I mean, like just you're building up an argument in sort of like a false way and that, then knocking it down. Exactly, that's the idea. Were you going to say something you can add to it? Same thing. Yeah, you, you, take, you take a position you want to critique, but you don't, you, you don't uh, uh, give it the most charitable version. You give it the most silly, distorted version you possibly can, and then you knock that one down. And you act as though you've critiqued the version. Well, that's what this is. But this is a little bit more sophisticated kind of Strauman argument because here, here's what this involves. You pick out the viewpoint you want to critique, and you distort it. But how do you do that? You do that by having extremists within the group represent the views of the group and speak for the group. And then you, and then you tear that one down. That's what this is. It ends up being a, a Strauman argument. And, and I, I've told my students many, many times, the problem with the Strauman, or there's, there's so many problems with the Strauman argument. Number one, it's not honest. It's not honest scholarship at all. Uh, if, if you teach that to your young people or anybody else you teach that to, you make them think they have a proper crit uh, critique or refutation of another view, which they really don't. And as soon as they meet somebody who really understands that view, they're going to find out they don't have it. But see, here's the worst. Here's the worst problem with the straw man fallacy. It's this. If it, 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 uh, put, it, put it this way. If in order to make the case you want to make, you have to misrepresent the other person's position and make it look weak and silly. If that's what you need to do to make your position look strong, well then the question is, how, how strong is your position? Is your position really that weak that that's what you have to do? Do you, have a, a, do you have really have a case at all? Let me, let me read you what, what uh, Alistair McGrath says about, about this, but, but confusing the extremists and, and uh, the mainstream. He says this uh, in his book, uh, The, God, uh, the, or, uh, the uh, Dawkins Delusion. He says, there, there is, I suppose, a lunatic fringe to every movement. Having been involved in many public debates over whether science has disproved the existence of God, I have ample experience of what I think I must describe as somewhat weird people, often with decidedly exotic ideas on both sides of the God-atheism debate. He says one of the most characteristic features of Dawkins' anti-religious polemic is to present the pathological as if it were normal, the fringe as if it were the center. And then he says crackpots as if they were mainstream. He says it generally works well for his intended audience, who can be assumed to know little about religion and probably care for it even less. But it's not acceptable, and it's certainly not scientific. And then he says this, Dawkins clearly has little interest in engaging religious believers who will simply find themselves appalled by the flagrant misrepresentation of their beliefs and lifestyles. Then he asks this question, the question we just asked a moment ago. Is the case for atheism really so weak that it has to be bolstered by such half-baked nonsense? In other words, in order to make his atheism look strong, does he have to intentionally distort the, the, the position he wants to critique? Is that really what's going on here? He just asks the question here. And he goes on to say, Dawkins simply treats evidence as something to shoehorn into his preconceived theoretical framework. Religion is persistently and consistently portrayed in the worst possible way. And he says this, mimicking the worst features of religious fundamentalism's portrayal of atheism. You find the same thing on the other side. You find some religious fundamentalist distorting atheism. They don't give it a good charitable reading either. But, it says, but now you're doing the same thing back here. And he says, when, when some leading scientists write in support of religion, Dawkins reports that they simply cannot mean what they say. He goes on to say that. Well, look, at, let, let me leave it at that. But this was a really key thing for me, n number six, the confusion of extremists with, with the mainstream. And, and it, it seems to be a, a key part of what's going on in, in the... Uh, uh, it, uh, in, in, in the New Atheist writing. Let me go to the, the next response, which has a number of parts to it, and I'll get to that. But the next response has to do with asking a really important question between religion and violence. You see, because we got this connection, we're, we're trying to figure out this connection, aren't we, between religion and violence. What is the connection here? 
And you see, if we, if we simply are asking, has religion played some role in bringing about serious acts of cruelty and violence in the world? You know what the answer is going to have to be to that? Yeah. We're going to have to say yes to that. Okay? And let's admit that. Let's stand against that. But that's not really the, the key question we need to ask. The key question, I think, is this one right here. Number seven. If religion went away, would the violence disappear? Think about that. If religion went away, would the violence disappear? In other words, if religion were eradicated from the world, would the violence that we see done in the name of religion, so we call it religious violence, would that disappear or even be seriously reduced? And the reason we ask this question is because we're getting at the fundamental heart of the matter here. And that is, is religion the cause of violence in the world? Does, does this cause that? Okay, I'm not sure if any, how many of you have, stud have you studied philosophy? Anybody taken a course in philosophy in university? You had some? Okay, John, one back here, I see a hand over here. It's a really, uh, one really interesting, intriguing discussion in philosophical circles um, surrounding the, one of the great philosophers, a Scottish philosopher named David Hume. Uh, it involves the, uh, the, the uh, question of causality. What's it mean for one thing to say one thing caused another? We know this happened and then this happened. Okay, we know that. Sometimes we say this caused it, sometimes we, sometime we say it didn't, sometimes we're not sure. What does it mean, and, and particularly this question, can you prove this thing caused that? Okay, so when you take that, when you're playing a game of pool, you take the cue, you hit the ball, the ball moves. What caused what? Did my hitting the, the ball cause it to move? If I go like this, put my hands together and there's a sound. Did the bringing my hands together, did it cause that sound? Well, Hume says this. Here's what we know for sure. We know that this one came before. The putting my hands together came first and then the sound came immediately after. We know that. And he says, I can do it again. I can do it again. And you know what you have? You have what he called constant conjunction. These two are constantly conjoined. Okay? Can you prove this one actually caused the second one? He says, well, I remember teaching this to some undergrads, and they were shaking their heads at why this is an important discussion. He came to me later and says, it's irrational to question stuff like that. I said, well, he's actually getting at a pretty interesting question. And, and the point is this. The only way to prove that this was the one that happened first caused the one that happened second is to know that if the one that happened first had not happened, the second one also would not have happened. Right? You see what I'm saying? That, that would be, if you could know that, then you would know that this one caused that. You got X and you got Y. Sometimes X just came before. It didn't cause it. Sometimes we know that. Sometimes we say X caused Y. How could you prove X caused Y? He said, well, you'd have to know that if you took X away, Y wouldn't happen. He says, and then, unfortunately for us as human beings, although, we, or, although we're really sure in our own minds that, 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 that when I put my hands together, this one caused it. We're really sure. None of us here in the room could possibly even doubt it. Even if we tried to doubt it, we really couldn't doubt it. But if you want to technically prove it, you'd have to know more than we could know. You'd have to know that if I hadn't brought my hands together, that sound wouldn't have happened. Now we're all saying, well, of course it wouldn't have happened. But, I mean, would we know that with 100% certainty? Well, all we know is that when I brought my hands together, the second one happened. I took the, that whole thinking here and I thought, we need to ask the very same question here. When, when we say, when someone says, the new atheists say, religion caused the violence. The relevant question then becomes, suppose we could have religion eradicated. If that were the case, do we have reason to believe that the so-called religious violence would disappear or at least be seriously reduced. And you know what? As I began looking at it, I found a number of reasons to say the answer to that I think is going to have to be no. 
I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I think so, and then we can have some we, uh, some questions on it later. The first one is this: one we've already referred to, and this is: look at religion has been the cause of, of of violence, but so has irreligion. And here is where I think we need to really seriously consider the significance of this fact, if it is true. Okay, that we're saying we're saying it's true, but let's let's just consider if this happens to be true. Can we catch the significance of this? Because in my mind, this is the critical point here. If both religious people <coughs> and non-religious people have inflicted violence on other people, that means, as I said a moment ago, that the common denominator of the violence is not religion, because this happened when people are religious and when were religious and when they were not. The common denominator seems to be, as we said before, people, humanity. G.K. Chesterton brought that out for us. But see, if that's true, then what does that mean? That means, if you think about it, that if you think we will end the violence by eliminating religion, we're barking up the wrong tree. We've got a false hope here because you know why? Because humans are still there. If humans are the real cause, the common denominator, then you can get rid of religion all you want, but humans are still there, the ones that really cause. So the only question really becomes for us, is it true that violence occurs where people are religious and where they're not? Well, some of you may have heard of the name Paul Marshall. Do you know that name? He's, he's, a, he's a, a guy who's done so, a lot of research on this exact question. Uh, religious freedom around the world and religious persecution around the world. He'd written one book called uh, a, a Global Report on Freedom and Persecution, another one called Their Blood Cries Out. He gives lectures and speeches on this kind of thing all over the place. Quite, we've had him at Trinity more than once. Uh, an interesting guy. And in one of his books, he com he's com just compiles uh, fact after fact, and he mentions this in Russia. 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, they adopted an atheist ideology, so nothing religious about it. Wasn't abandoned until the late 80s. During those years, Marshall, Paul Marshall brings out that acts of violence and brutality done to religious believers of all stripes was devastating. Here, he, he, he says in the 1920s and 30s alone, approximately 200,000 Russian Orthodox priests, monks, and nuns were slaughtered. A further half million were imprisoned or deported to Siberia. And the point he, that we can't miss here is that all of this was carried out as part of an irreligious agenda. There was, there was no religious motivation here. He says in China, if anything, it, there was even a worse story. China is a ph phenomenal country. It's an amazing country. We're hearing a lot about China these days. Uh, and and, 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 and a, a hugely influential country. I just found out just this morning that the number two uh, cell phone company in the world, what's the name of it? Anybody know? It's something about Huawei, Huawei something like that. Yeah. Say it again. Huawei. Huawei, yeah. Okay. They're out of China. They don't even have a foothold in the U.S. market, period. And yet they're number two. They just surpassed Apple, okay? So there, there's amazing stuff coming out of China. Well, unfortunately, they've got some things in their past which are sad as well. Uh, and Marshall brings out in 1949, Chairman Mao Zedong gained, uh, gained power, declared the People's uh, Repo Republic of China, ended with his death in 1976. And in the me meantime, there was brutal and mass ideological campaigns which resulted in, li in literally millions of deaths. There was brutal labor camps. There was murder, there was exile, there was what he called re-education camps. And he mentions, and this is a quote from Marshall, <clears throat> in the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76, probably tens of millions of people were killed, tens of millions more were disgraced, particularly brutal by China's believers, whether Christian, Muslim, or Buddhist. And see, the fact is that there is many ways that entirely secular forces and principles and ideologies have been the cause of great violence. I mentioned Rwanda a little bit ago, 800,000 people clubbed, shot, macheted to death in the name of ethnic hostility, ethnic cleansing, nothing to do with religion. The French Revolution, four million dead, 
fought in the name of three secular principles, liberty, equality, fraternity. And you can just go on and on. Nothing, again, nothing to do with religion. And, and I guess the point we've got to just make sure we really get here, I think, is that all of this carried out without a hint of religious motivation. In fact, often it's been the opposite. So that's the first reason why I think we, we, need, we need to really question what, what this, the answer to this question. If religion were taken away, would the violence disappear? It doesn't look like it. Because not only religious, but, ir but irreligious people have caused huge amounts of violence as well. Let's go to number two here. The second one here, this comes from a professor uh, in the, uh, in the uh, United States in the University of Chicago, Professor Robert Pape, P-A-P-E. I don't know if anybody here has heard his name, but he is really a person to read. Uh, he's a guy, he's a specialist in international security affairs. He's written on this whole thing, on this issue, written a number of books. Uh, he, and he has researched very carefully the motivations and the causes of suicide attacks. In fact, every single one that he could find from 1980 up to 2005. In 2005, he wrote a book called Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. He wrote another book called Bombing to Win, another one called Cutting the Fuse in 2010, Explosion of Global Suicide Terrorism, stuff like that. But here's what uh, Professor Pape says, and we might as well just hear his conclusion. His conclusion is this. If we look at religious violence and we say, is this caused by religious people? Here's his answer. We are way too hasty if we believe religious motivations are all there is to it. And here's how he puts it right up here. He says that, the, the, that religious belief is neither necessary, how many of you know what I mean when I say this, is neither necessary nor is it sufficient to move people to commit suicide attacks. You see what I'm saying there? Very strong point. Religious motive, religious belief, neither necessary nor sufficient. This is Robert Pape now. To move people to commit suicide attacks. In other words, you don't even need it. It's not necessary. People can will commit suicide attacks for other reasons. And even if you have it, it's never sufficient all by itself to get people to do that, okay? And Pape explains it this way. He says, when you actually look at the actual attacks, look at them and examine the ones and find out everything you can about them, you find out that the motivation for suicide attacks is normally not religious, but political. That's what it is. He says it's normally the desire to force the withdrawal of an occupying foreign force from one's country when you have limited military power to convite a, a conventional war. Imagine if you're up against a major military country today, like the United States, like England, uh, a few other, like France, okay, a few countries like that that have major militaries. Can you possibly take them on in a, in a normal conventional war? You, you can't do it. So what do you do? This is what you do, as Robert Pape is bringing out. And he says that that's the normal motivation. But here's what he says. Sometimes this political motivation is joined with the religious element, and sometimes it's not. But the important point he wants to make is this. Uh, that these acts would certainly happen anyway with or without the religious motivation because the fundamental motivation is political. And, and that, 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 that's, that's his conclusion. So we, we might as well know that from a guy who's actually studied this. Let me go to a third one here. And that is underlying sociological fact about binary division. Some of you will know something about this fascinating area that, that some of you may even know more than I do about because I'm not a sociologist, but I... I'm really quite taken with this particular concept in sociology. It's a sociological fact about the fundamental causes of why human beings divide into groups in the first place. Have you ever, this is, and, and Alistair McGrath raises this one as well, but have you ever noticed how, uh, all of you in this room, have you noticed how we as human beings tend to divide ourselves up in many different ways? Have you noticed that? Many ways. Nationalities is one way. I mean, we could say families as well, of course. Uh, ethnicities, tribes, Various religious identities. 
We have clubs, gangs, countries, nations, to name just a few. And the question is, why so many divisions? Why, are, why do we have any divisions at all? Why aren't we just one big happy family without divisions? The family of the human race. Why are we that? Well, sociologists point out these are actually social constructs. We invent them as human beings. And we do so because we have a deep need for communities to be a part of. I mean, this is really quite positive when you think of it this way. They help us define ourselves and they give us an identity. They give us a community to be a part of. Charles Taylor talks about this as well. But, but here's the point. There's also a very dark side to this whole thing. And that's, what's caused, that's what we're getting into today. Because these same groups that we're all a part of, they lead us to define and identify other people in certain ways. We've got people who are inside of the group. You know who they are? They're our friends. We have deep commonality with them. But what about all those on the outside? Well, they may be enemies, maybe opponents, they may be just outsiders. It leads to the concept of the other, which we sometimes hear about. So you have a binary opposition. This binary opposition helps us shape our perception of other people. But here's a really important point that I want to get to for this talk right tonight. The important point is this, that sometimes this binary opposition is defined in religious terms. You've got Protestant versus Catholic, let's say, believer versus infidel, Shiite versus Sunni, and things like other definitions, other divisions like that. But at other times, the definitions are purely non-religious. Ethnicity, language, nationality, gender, age, sexual orientation, political views. You've got, you got very many that, that, that are not religious in nature as well. The point is this. It means that it's simply naive to, to, to think that if we eradicate it from the world, all these divisions, the violence that comes from, from we, can, we can do that. If we, could get rid of, if we could get rid of religion, that we would eradicate all the, all the divisions and all that. The divisions would still carry on because we as human beings need them to form the basis of our communities and give us a sense of identity. Um, and, and so getting rid of religion wouldn't touch that one bit. Let me go to number four here when we're just about done this part here. And that is this. Where does religion fit in then? Are we saying that religion plays no part? I've asked that a little bit ago in the so-called religious violence. Well, I don't think we're saying that. So what part then does it play? Where does it fit? This is a really intriguing question for me. Here's how McGrath answers the question. And I, I, I think I like his answer quite a bit. He says, religion has often been the perfect tool to recruit soldiers to fight the battles to push out foreign occupiers, to fend off the threat of cultural to our cultural values or way of life, what do you do? You encourage young people, usually young, to fight the battle. You call it the will of God. You, maybe you promise paradise or some kind of some great reward. And, and, and when you do that, you get soldiers to fight your battles for it. And I guess I'd say when religion is used this way, uh, it becomes an insidious evil. It becomes an abuse of religion. But we should at least keep in mind and when it comes to abusing things, religion is not the only thing that can be abused, as we saw a little bit ago. Lots of other alternatives exist. Anything can be abused. Liberty, equality, atheism, tolerance, na uh, nationalism, these can, all, can all, be, will all be abused. And I guess there's just a couple things I'd say we should remember. The first is this. We should never judge anything by its abuse, because almost anything can be abused. And number two, what we really should be doing is trying to figure out then what to do about it rather than picking out one of those ideals that somebody has abused and say, that's the problem right there. Uh, we, we, should, we should try to figure out what to, what to do about it. Now, that's where we ought to go. Let me go to one other point I want to make, particularly as a Christian thinking about this issue. And, 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 and then just before I do, let, let's think about where we've come here, okay? We're going to look, look up here. We've covered a whole bunch of ideas, but I think we can summarize them in these few points here. 
Let me just come right over here if I can read this a little bit better because I don't have it in my notes. Uh, both religious and non-religious people commit many acts of violence. Okay, we've seen that already. Okay, number two, the vast majority of religious people are outraged by them. Okay, number three, tell me, I don't think anybody will disagree with these parts, but you can let me know later on. These acts are often driven by deeper political or sociological motivations, which would remain even if religion were eliminated. Okay, number four, religion is sometimes turned into a tool to help recruit soldiers to fight these battles. Number five, while this is a horrific abuse of religion, all ideals can be abused. And number six, humans will always divide into communities. The result is a binary opposition which lies at the heart of human conflict. Some of these divisions are religious, but, but most are not. Okay, that's where we've come so far. Can we give one more final response here? One more that I, I'm always quite excited to give. I find it to be an exciting point. And I make it particularly as a Christian responding to this point. And sometimes, if I, had, if I have two minutes to respond, we've had more time here tonight, but if I had two minutes to respond, I would just go right to this, okay? Um, and, and remember, Christians aren't the only ones facing this charge. I've actually been part of at least one uh, interfaith dialogue up at SFU where we had people from different religions. Right beside me was a Muslim leader, and he and I have become somewhat friends as well. In the meantime, by emailing back and forth and trying to do some things together, uh, really a nice young guy, a leader at one of the temples in, in, uh, in Richmond, a major temple there, and, and uh, I, I couldn't believe it. Some of the things he was saying, some of the same things I was saying, it was really interesting to me. But I don't normally try to represent anybody else but the, I, the, the points we made earlier here, but when it comes to this issue, I represent my own faith, my own position here. I let others speak for themselves. And I do find this, that one of the most exciting <coughs> points you can make as a Christian here on this issue is simply to point to Jesus and ask this big question. When we say religion is the cause of the, of the violence, what kind of religion are we talking about? How about this? Is it the religion of Jesus? And, and, here, and here's what this comes to. How about this question? If you lived out Jesus' teachings, and I mean really truly lived them out, if anybody did, would you then be led to carry out acts of violence in the pursuit of your religious aims? What do we think about that? This is really, in my mind, the key question here. And this is where I think we'd have to let Muslims, you can answer it the way you prefer to, others are answer the way you prefer to, but as a Christian, Here's what I would put to you this question. If you really, and I mean, if anybody really, truly followed, embraced Jesus' teaching on how he, how he called his followers to live, do you think that person would be led to carry out acts of violence in the pursuit of their religious goals? Well, think about what Jesus taught. We, we all, we, most of us know some of these things. How about that statement by him, turn the other cheek? We don't even really know what to do with that one all the time, do we? What did, he, did he really mean that completely, fully? Well, whatever, it sounds to me like he's saying, we need to respond non-violently to an act of violence done to us. What, what else can that statement mean? And you can take it from there and decide how you want to apply that. But how about this? Go the second mile. What's it, what's it mean to go the second mile? Jesus taught that. It means when someone asks you for assistance, you give them what they ask for and more. Not just what they ask for, but you give them more. Uh, I was just telling uh, John today with, uh, with a, a brother-in-law of mine who I, I learned a good lesson from one day just a short time ago up in Edmonton. Walked by a homeless person, homeless person asked us for money. My uh, brother-in-law, John, pulled it up his hand in the pocket. He pulled out some money, gave it to him. He realized it wasn't very much. We went in the store, he bought some of this, came back out and walked over to him again. So here, I wasn't able to give you very much. Here's a little bit more for you. 
And I thought, now that is really, I haven't seen that very often. I've heard most of us say, don't give them cash, okay? We have this rule that we follow. And then, so John and I had a good discussion about that. And I learned more from John here tonight uh, on, on, on that issue. And I thought, that's going the second mile. I think John went the second mile. And that's what, I mean, not this John here, but my brother-in-law's name is John as well. How about this one, the golden rule? We know what that, we know what that is, don't we? Do unto others as what? As, as we, as what, what, do unto others as? We would have them do unto us. We would have them do unto us. Notice what it does not say? Do unto others as they have done unto us? Isn't, isn't that kind of how we tend to interpret it? A little bit like that? If the person done something to us, don't we tend to think we have kind of the right to maybe do that back? There's kind of a sense of justice now. They've done it to us, so we should be able to do it back to them. That's kind of a sense of justice. But Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, and we have, we have lots of ways we, we interpret this, this verse. But, but I, I've often thought about this and realized this is a powerful rule of thumb for our daily interactions with others. And this could bring moral clarity to a huge number of moral situations, little moral questions we find ourselves in. You're not sure what to do in a certain situation? Put your shoe on the other foot and just ask, well, what would I want done if that were me over there? Just ask the question. And oftentimes... Moral clarity right there. You know exactly what you'd want done if that were you over there. And that's what Jesus is saying. As, as a rule of thumb, there it is. How about this one, though? This one may be the, the most stunning. Love not just your friends, but who? Your enemies. your enemies, too. Now, we read over that pretty quickly, pretty glibly, like some other things in the Bible we read over quick, quickly, if, if we read them a lot. Because, see, I've always, I've always thought, if we're really honest... Sometimes it's even plenty difficult to love our friends, is it not? <laughs> but look, look what Jesus is saying. Imagine looking at a person who's done you wrong, okay? Maybe even grievous wrong, maybe even harmed your family, your country, undermined whole lives of what you harmed people you love. Imagine looking at a person like that. Maybe you've done him wrong too. Maybe it's gone on for weeks, months, years, generations. How about that? And then what does Jesus say to do with that person? I mean, it's incredible what he says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. And I'm quite sure he doesn't mean pray for their demise. Okay? I think he meant something like Stephen did. Remember Stephen? Here's Stephen. This, this is, in my mind, about as uh, a powerful and dramatic an example of this as you can get. Here's Stephen, the very end of his life, the last, few, last couple of minutes of his life. He's, he's in the middle. They're hurling stones at him. They're crashing into him, breaking his bones. Ultimately, in the next few minutes, they would kill him with all these stones coming at him. And he yells something out to, to God. What does he yell out? Remember? remember? Yeah, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's the last thing he says as, as, the, as the stones keep coming at him. And, of course, Jesus himself on the cross. I think I heard these words over here. Here's Jesus on the cross. What, is, what, does, he, what does he shout out? Forgive, Forgive them. them. They know not what they do. Okay. I thought they did know perfectly well what they did. That's what I, I thought. And Jesus is, he's, he's cutting them a huge benefit of the doubt, let's say. Of course, he knows more than we do, too. Um, but forgive them for they know not what they do. That, that's what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. And, of course, I think the story of Jonah, as I, as I mentioned earlier, shows just how hard this really is to do, if these really are your enemies. And, and then, of course, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to punch the point home. And, if, of course, if you're familiar with the accounts of Jesus... You'll know that one of the main criticisms leveled against him by his opponents was what? He accepted and touched people who were considered by his culture to be unclean. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the demon-possessed. I read a couple of statements by a couple of really well-known 
uh, a highly rated Christian scholar. His one's name is Giza Vermez, a Jewish Catholic, top-rated biblical scholar. He wrote a book called Jesus the Jew, 1994. And he says in that book this, Jesus actually took his stand among the pariahs of the world, those despised by the respectable. Sinners were his table companions. The ostracized tax collectors and prostitutes were his friends. And E.P. Sanders puts it this way. He says, The offense Jesus caused to the more pious orthodox around him was not that he tried to get tax collectors and sinners to repent and repay what they owed. It was in part that he ate with them before they changed their lifestyle. Caused all kinds of offense everywhere he went for that. And, and not only that, but I began to realize, as I thought more of what Jesus did, and maybe see if you, uh, if you can pick up on this as well, that a disproportionately large number of the people for whom Jesus performed wonderful miracles. You thought about who these people were? These were people who would have been ostracized, treated as outsiders, sometimes viewed with contempt by the, or by the Orthodox religious elite. Think about that. The Gentile centurion's servant, the book of Luke. He got a great miracle performed by Jesus. The demon-possessed Gerasene who lived in the local cemetery. That's where he lived. He got a great miracle performed by Jesus. The Samaritan leper. He got a great miracle performed by Jesus. The book of Luke chapter, Gospel of Luke chapter 17. And I guess my question just comes again right here. If we followed the teachings of this man Jesus, would we be led to acts of violence in the pursuit of our religious aims? One more little point I just want to make by, by way of closing. We don't have it up here. But when I got all done this, I was talking with a TA of mine, and we were working on this together, and I said, okay, how do you end this thing? Like, where, where do you go from here with this? And my TA's name was Dave, <coughs> Dave Lund. He said this, you know what? We need to think a little bit about this, because we've kind of come full circle in the discussion here. Um, because, you see, if, 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 uh, if G.K. Chesterton and people like him were right in saying that the source of the world's most intractable problems... That's what, that's what Chesterton was saying. If the source of the biggest problems lie within us as humans, and not somewhere out there. If he's right about that, you know what that means? That any solution to the problems will have to involve what? A change within us. That's, that's just, that just follows. If the, if the problem is here, the solution's going to have to involve a change here. And what I find most fascinating here is that kind of change is exactly what Jesus came to offer the world. Exactly that. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in Christ we are new creations, creatures. The old is gone, the new has come. It's a little bit, a little bit ironic, isn't it? Because you start by talking about religion as the cause of the world's big problems, and then you turn to someone, something or someone, actually Jesus, who sounds pretty religious, namely Jesus, not as the source of the problem, but as a solution to the problem. But I think as Christians, that's, what, that's the position we're in. Jesus is the solution to the problems we're talking about here. So as ironic as that may sound, if you really could rid the world, if you could succeed in ridding the world of any teachings about Jesus 100%, you would have done yourself a huge disservice getting rid of probably the only thing that is able to bring about the change from within that is necessary if we're going to really find a solution to, the, to this problem. Um, so there we have the question here again. Okay, thank you very much. That is all I need to say. Uh, that's quite a bit, but that's all I need to say. I'm, I'm, and you know what? I haven't got a clue how long I've been up here. <laughs> Anybody tell me? An hour. One hour. An hour? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> An hour what? <laughs> An hour and a little bit more? Uh, okay. 
thank you very much. You've been a great audience here, great listeners here. I, I would, uh, what, what do we do, Clark? Just go into some uh, discussion let's open here? Up for some, um, any kind of questions. Well, I'd love it. I uh, love that. They, they can ask you, or maybe they can respond to one another. Well, yeah, just have some group discussion for a few minutes? No, no. Uh, just, just, just go, just go. open discussion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and if anyone needs to leave, they can. Okay. You mean there's freedom to go, actually? <laughs> there's freedom to go. There's freedom to stay as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not a situation where once you come in, you're in. You're, you can leave, but we encourage you. We'd love to have you stay. Well, we'll look at it. And we can, yeah, let's have, anybody who wants to raise anything, I'd love to hear anything. If you want to add to the lecture, to the con discussion, question to raise, what comes to your mind when you hear this kind of thing? Uh, I have a question. Do you know what Sam Harris or any of these people's thought is beyond to get rid of uh, all religion? Like, is there, is, did they have a replacement for it? Or what do they think is going to happen when religion goes away oh. as far as beliefs and... Well, uh, so as far as, like, first like Sam Harris is concerned, I can pretty well tell you with, with, with uh, pretty confident there. Harris just believes religion is full of superstitions, a bunch of beliefs that aren't based on anything worth, worth anything. Uh, we'd be way better off just to follow scientific rules, scientific principles, He's a science, he always, I guess if there was any replacement for religion, it would be science, according as far as Sam Harris is concerned. So he's written one book called The Moral Landscape, in which he argues that the, the science can form the foundation for morality. Because he's quite sure that a lot of people accept, uh, believe that religion is necessary for, some kind of religion is necessary for, for moral foundation. Right. And so he's argued that science could form that, provide that foundation. I think, I think he, he believes we do just fine. Carry on just as we are. Follow scientific principles, think rationally, use evidence, not belief, which he pits against each other, evidence versus faith. Those two are uh, polar opposites. Uh, ditch, um, ditch this one, follow this one, and, uh, and we'd be okay. Now, that, that, that's, I think that's where Sam Harris would, would be at, and I think probably the others as well. Yeah, yeah uh, Clark, yeah. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you said, and just really the tone is really good in returning us back to, to Jesus' teachings. The one thing that I've seen a lot of people mm -hmm. do uh, in the past, I would say, five to eight years, is that they... Uh, that's, atheists, pretty, that's pretty specific, by the way. Yes. <laughs> just right in that time Even frame. new atheists are, yeah. uh, are starting to just say, okay, let's not rid the world of religion, but reform religion yeah. through, um, oh, okay. uh, through new means. So Karen Armstrong would say that... Yeah. Uh, that we have the reptilian brain from evolution, okay, yeah, yeah. and we've evolved into kind of a, a the neocortex evolved, and that's how consciousness and conscience and all yeah, this kind of yeah. came. And so when you read the Bible, mm -hmm. she said, "Yeah, all the source of all religion is do unto others as you would have them do unto you." Yeah. Uh, but when you have the Canaanite wars, and when you have uh, maybe even Jesus speaking of hell and these things. Th this goes back to the reptilian brain uh -huh. being writ large, that survival yeah. of the fittest, yeah. now putting its agenda within religion. And so we, from this point of view, now that we've evolved into a, a greater consciousness, needs to look at religion and start weeding out what's not good uh -huh. and what's good. Or Alan David Tan is saying, okay, well, there's some rituals that we really want to keep and use them use religious practices, not because we believe it. Yeah. So how do you talk about, um, mm -hmm. or how would you respond to those people saying, okay, yeah. well, religion's not all bad. Okay, I hear your argument. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but we really need to, to parse out what is good and what's bad yeah. from yeah. something external yeah. to religion. Well, well, I mean, hey, you know what? I might be open to a discussion on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there some things, are there some, some, some things that we, 
that uh, uh, religious people, including Christians, have promoted that, that aren't healthy? Maybe, maybe there are. And, and maybe we need to look at, if they're like, I, I would probably want to get a, one or two very concrete suggestions from a person like that. So like, yeah, let, let me just check out, as a Christian, let me check out, where, where, where does a Christian need to stand on that? Okay, Canaanite Wars, that's a really good example. Where, where are we? Uh, are we convinced, do we know for sure that God commanded people to go in there and destroy every man, woman, and child? Do we know that? Well, there's a couple of really good scholars out there that have written today that, said, that, that uh, have argued that something called, um, uh, I think the, te the term is war text hyperbole, was standard fare in, in the ancient Near East. And we need to interpret those passages properly. And if we look at the entire Old Testament in this context, that wasn't there. So, so uh, in, in the same way that we often take it to be. Uh, but I, I guess, I, you know what, I would probably have an entertainer a pretty good discussion, but I want to, as a Christian, I want to get back and be clarify exactly what it is that we as Christians have to believe based on a biblical reading. Uh, and, um, yeah, and be very careful with it. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I need to think more about that, Clark. Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. And I, I, you know what, I would probably welcome that kind of discussion. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't mind that discussion at all. I, I guess I'd just be saying there's some other fundamental truth claims of Christianity that we have some reason to believe are true. These are things we're probably going to have to hang on to. But is, is there something, is, is, have, we, have we been carrying on a certain interpretations that maybe we don't have to? Maybe we, maybe we should not. Let's see a hand here. Scott, yeah. Um, yeah. Straw man argument came yeah. up a couple times. <clears throat> yeah, right. I couldn't help yeah. thinking when I was listening to you and others talk about that, Yeah. Um, that the church engages in that prolifically. And um, I'm just wondering, as, as a teacher at a, at a yeah. Christian university, you get these students. It's brutal. Coming, yeah, is it? <laughs> it's just, so, it so just really, it just drives, and sometimes drive you nuts. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask, you know, how's the church doing? Oh, know? okay. <laughs> <laughs> My well, guess you know, is not very well. But, well look, I know. can't even say that once in a while I haven't been caught in it. We, we, we say things sure. and we realize later on, oh, just a minute. Yeah. Did I really give the most charitable interpretation yeah. of that position? Right. I mean, I remember way back when I was doing my own PhD. 1987, 98, 88, 89, had a, 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 my main uh, uh, dissertation director, a professor I spent a lot of time with, Dr. Bill Starr. He and I would talk about how we deal with people we, uh, we respond to, philosophers we disagree with. He'd say, and he'd look at someone and he'd say, that, uh, boy, I totally disagree with that person. He'd say, he'd say that to me. He said, but you know what we got to do? we got to begin by giving every single person we read the most charitable interpretation we possibly can on the assumption that the person's probably not a, not a, a jerk, I think he said. <laughs> the person's probably not that. Yeah. They probably had some reason, some way for, of thinking what they did. Okay. Yeah. Now, this becomes really hard when there's a position that disgusts you. It's not just what you disagree, because see, there's disagreement, but then there's being disgusted with the position. That's a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. And you try to get any one of us to take a position or a person we're disgusted by and then give them a very charitable reading and see maybe they have a point. Is there one or two things that maybe they're making good points and I can actually agree with something in there? That's wickedly hard. Okay? And to test ourselves, we need to think of something that disgusts us and find out the person, the person making the, 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 the claim there. So that's one of the reasons I love teaching philosophy is because you, 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 you have students right off the bat you say, here's the issue, whatever the issue is, here's an article that argues this one side of it, and you need to read that and critique that and get, let's get really good at our argument. And of course the students say, oh, that's a great article, man, that guy's smart, oh, wow. And then the next day I'm having to read one who argues exactly the opposite position. Mm -hmm. 
that guy is really smart too. Now I don't know what I'm supposed to believe. And one, one guy told me one time, you're messing with our minds, he says to me. <laughs> I just laugh so hard about it. But, but I mean, it, it, the, the fact is, that's the beauty of it. That's the joy of it. Because then you, you realize, yeah, I bet you didn't even really know that for that position where the, you disagree with, there actually is a case that could be made. If you just actually sit down and read that article carefully. Now, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But you should at least begin by giving it a charitable reading. And I think most of us as human beings, I say when you say the church, I say as human beings across North America, we're fairly fuzzy thinkers in general. Okay, We're not really very critical thinkers, uh, but we, we could do better. Um, places like this exist to help Christians become, and people who are thinking, become more critical thinkers. But that's one place to start, is just by asking yourself this question. The way I've described that other position, is that the way someone who believes it would, dis would describe it? And like when I began doing these debates I was involved in, it was very, very helpful for me. Because I had to do this. Like we're, let's say I have Sven Robbins sitting just a few feet away. He's brilliant. Okay? Nice guy too, but he's brilliant. If you have a logical slip, don't think you're going to get away with it. He's going to catch that because he's, he, he's a lawyer and he's, he's bright. I know because I, I debated a different person on the same issue. I was saying one thing. I said it for five, six debates in a row. Nobody caught a thing. Sven Robinson pick, picked it up just like that. Okay, uh, And so you're sitting there and you begin to realize, okay, what I need to do is, first of all, frame the actual question at stake here in a way that both of us agree with that this is the question. And then I need to frame it, frame his position, that other position, in a way that he would frame it, this position in a way that someone who believes it would frame it. Now we're ready to actually get thinking together in a, in a fair fashion, fair manner. Uh, and that's just something we all need to learn to do. And, and I, I do find with most, most of our students, once you get them going on it, they're happy to do it. They love to do it. They want to do it. Okay? Uh, it, it's just that if it's a position that disgusts you, and in the, in the political uh, framework we have today, particularly the United States, more so than Canada at the moment, uh, but even up here to some degree, is when things get more and more polarized, very, very difficult mm -hmm. to give the other side a fair hearing. Mm -hmm. But my, my comment to students many, many times has been, unless you, are, unless you understand that other side, and, and you can actually articulate it the way someone who believes it would articulate it, and you can give two or three of the best reasons for it. At least you know what they are. Yeah. You're not ready to tell us with much authority why the, the, this one's better, this position's better than that position. Yeah. And I use it in, oh, sorry, just right there. Mm -hmm. I use it in my discussions all the time. I had a young person come up to me after one of my own uh, <coughs> lectures at UBC. I think it was a debate I gave there. And came up and said, you know, I can disprove Christianity in five minutes. I said, okay, go for it. Mm -hmm. Take your best shot. Mm -hmm. I got I got it. I want to hear you. And uh, so he immediately uh, began telling me that he could disprove scientifically the flood. Okay? And he could disprove the historical Adam and Eve. I said, and these are your arguments. And I said, and from this you're getting to the conclusion what? There is no God. There is no flood. Therefore, there is no God. Uh, or Adam and Eve did not live as a historic there, Therefore, Christianity is false. How are you getting from here to here? Yeah. I said, there's got to be a number of steps. You've you got to make a few steps here, and I'm not hearing any steps at all. Mm -hmm. I said, give me some of the steps. And finally I said, okay, look it. Have you read any articles by scientists for a universal flood? Have you, have you just read any? No. I said, and you're telling us all here, because by that time there was this large crowd of people. So you're telling us all here that the position that there was no universal flood is a better position than that there was a universal flood 
but you don't know the arguments for the second position. So yeah, I said, you got to do yourself a favor and at least find out what those arguments are. You know, and, and that's, that's how we left it. And, 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 I mean, uh, and I do that to him, did that to him, I do it to my students, but, I, but you know what I've had to do to myself as well. Because as, as a professor, you can fall into the trap of thinking you're doing all this stuff and realize that somebody can catch you. And if you've got, I got two boys, one's 32, one's 23, just flip those numbers around mm -hmm. twice in their life so far. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, 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 sometimes I, we talk about the same stuff and they'll catch me, Dad, that was, that, that's not how he would say that. I said, you're not supposed to say that to me, son. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not good when they say this stuff back to you. you know? Right. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, uh, and, and then, but but you do realize, okay, well, this is what we need to do. So yeah, I, you had a hand up quite a while ago. Yeah, Sorry about yeah. That. I'm just wondering if uh, in any of your readings covering like the, any yeah. of the new atheists, if they've ever actually defined religion in a in a really definitive manner. Because <coughs> this, it's this word that I've I mean, read some of their stuff, yeah, but even yeah. in the lecture, religion, yeah. religion, and it's like, right. well, even that is a loaded term, Very right? hard to define. Have you ever tried to define it? Well, that's because uh, I was it's thinking, I mean, else. was it, uh, yeah, because wow. recently Sam Harris, he wrote a book in the last few years, what was it, Spirituality Without Religion or something like that, yeah. or it had something to do with that, Yeah. and it seems like a lot of the new atheists today are kind of dipping their toes in the outer rim of what would constitute the yeah, yeah. fundamental building blocks yeah. of religion. Well, yeah, see, I, yeah. I don't want to say they haven't, a uh, guy like Harris hasn't come up with a definition of religion per se. Maybe he has, um, s somewhere. They use the term a lot, like you say. Uh, the, the, the things that, here's one thing that Sam Harris does, which I think is pretty critical to his understanding of religion. I mentioned just a moment ago that he pits evidence against faith. He actually quotes Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse, uh, verse 1, where it says uh, something about uh, faith is the um, evidence of things not seen, okay? The assurance of things hoped for, okay? And, and he says, see, there you have it. There you have faith on one hand, and you've got evidence over here. You've got two different things here. Religion is something based on faith, and evidence science is what, based, is what works with evidence. So he says, by definition, then, if you start working with evidence, you're, you're out of the realm of religion. Okay? You start working with, with faith. That's the, that's the realm of religion. And, and then he defines faith as um, something about the, he's got a, quite, quite a, a negative definition. As the but the acceptance of things without basis or something like that, without evidential basis, okay? Because as soon as you bring evidence into it, then you're in, you're into something that's not religion anymore. Now, defining religion is really a very big job. I, I've taught philosophy of religion, and one thing we start by doing is saying, "Can we define religion?" And it, you end up realizing that there is no one standard definition of religion. But the one thing I think that that is the the key key principle for um, new atheists is that religion is tied together, the key things really part of religion that they're concerned about, is tied together by the notion that there's a God there, a supreme being, who interacts with people and gives them instructions, and gives them orders. And then they base their entire life on that, uh, and they believe this is correct, and anything else that disagrees with it is false. That, that's, that's the foundational idea that they're going with, with religion. So if you, if you took that part out of it, I don't think Harris would have a lot of problem with it. Yeah, no, you had a hand up. I, I saw one right back here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, try, I'm framing this a little bit mm -hmm. from uh, Bruxy Cavey's perspective out of Toronto, uh, who wrote a book called The End of Religion, mm -hmm. arguing that Jesus was completely irreligious in how he lived yeah. as a Christian okay. pastor, yeah. uh, and uh -huh. that actually Jesus came to end religion. That was what he was trying to do. He wanted people to have a relationship with God, mm -hmm. but not to 
have all of these uh, pharisaical legalistic aspirations yeah. where uh, there's more tradition than there is love. There's more yeah. keeping people yeah. out than there is uh, okay. caring for people. And, and so we see a lot of that within our mm-hmm. Western church that mm-hmm. is fading. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I wonder how that all ties into yeah. all of this yeah. because oh. I think there is something beautiful about What do you think about that? Well, I think there's something beautiful about how irreligious Jesus was. That's how you ended your mm-hmm. talk, talking mm-hmm. about this is who he was caring for. This is who he's spending time mm-hmm. with. This is, like, all of that is mm-hmm. not the, the, the perception of the Western church. I think, I I think that is happening here yeah. and there. But by yeah, and large, yeah. it, it, yeah. there can be a sense of it being an insider's club and, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and not being a very healthy social institution. So um, I think there's a lot of fear. Uh, mm-hmm. within the church. I think that's in some ways why we're not thinking through mm-hmm. some of these things as much because there's yeah. a fear of what's out there. Can we actually handle all of this? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes the walls actually try to keep some of those mm-hmm. ideas out as well. So I think there's a lot to it. But I, I, having <coughs> so, read so, Bruxy's book, I think what he argues for is mm-hmm. there's something really attractive mm-hmm. in that of, of, yeah, there are... Maybe religion doesn't cause violence, but is there a legalism in the church that is caused by religion? Well, yeah, some of that's not so helpful. And are are we hanging on to historical structures that we shouldn't be? Yeah, we're probably doing some of that as well. And I, I, it's an interesting uh, parallel. So, what do you think about this? Then? Tell me this. What's your name, by the way? Mark. Okay, Mark. Yeah, great name. Can't do better than that. Um, <laughs> I was. I had this comment made about me. You tell me whether it's a compliment or whether I, I've got work to do. Okay. Um, niece of ours came visited at a family reunion. Brought a fellow with her that she was living with, not a Christian. And hung around for a few days with the family reunion. And uh, nice guy, really nice guy. Everybody really really enjoyed him. Anyway, so the family reunion was. Well, then he got to our place and. You know, I, I drive a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I like that. I, I guess he didn't see me as being a very—I didn't talk much like a religious person. I don't know. I don't know what he thought. But anyway, he got home. He said this to his uh, to his girlfriend's dad, my brother-in-law, and he, he came and told me. He said, "Well, Trevor says, Paul, you're the least real, the most un, non-religious Christian he's ever met." I thought, boy, I guess is that okay? <laughs> What do you think? Is that a good thing? I think it's beautiful. <laughs> you do? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I like this guy. Okay. <laughs> That's an interesting thing because I had never thought of myself one way or the other. Okay. And, and I don't know. We probably didn't talk much religion during that weekend. I suppose I don't. I forget what we all talked about. Uh, I, I do believe in giving thanks for our meals. I'm a, I'm a really big believer in that. And a very meaningful thanks. Okay. Um, you see, it's really interesting to me. I mean, religion has come to include so many things that go beyond the big stuff that Jesus seemed to talk about and be involved in, you know. And you can see why a lot of Christians will say, I'm not very, uh, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I got a son, older son, and he kind of, oh, yeah, he just kind of, what are, what are we people saying that for, okay? Uh, he kind of he kind of laughs a bit at that. Well, the reason people are saying it is kind of what you're getting at here, okay? Because they would like to see our connection with Jesus as something more than what normally goes into the name religion, which is a big set of structures and pa- uh, patterns that we need to follow, a bunch of rules that we live by, and things like that, you know? Um, now, on the other hand, James was happy to call it religion. To appear an undefiled religion is to do what? 
help the orphans and the widows. C.F. Lewis, very happy to call it religion. Yeah. You know? So it's not as if religion tends to, is a bad word or anything like that. Uh, but but that, different it, it, context, it, it, though. Yeah. yeah. In, in some ways, the, what's yeah. going on in history, what yeah. was acceptable, what wasn't, what, you yeah. know, it was, it was less of a global thing. Yeah, right. Uh, so there, I think yeah. there's lots of yeah, right. changes that have happened mm -hmm. to really taint mm -hmm. that word in modern times here. It's a great discussion. I don't think we're going to come into, uh, I mean, I'm not bringing it to any kind of a head, but that's, that's a really good thought you, you, you've raised here for us. And I, I, I like it a lot. I, I mean, I, I would tend to think that genuine relationship with God through Jesus is very different than what most people in North America would think about when they just think of the term religion. And to that degree, the, the, the pastor, you're going to give me his name again. Brexy Cavey. Brexy? Cavey. Cavey. K-B? Cavey. C-A-V-E-Y. That's a name I haven't heard. Cavey. Yeah, the end of religion. Okay. He pastors, yeah. uh, do you remember his health? There's thousands of people in the church okay. in Toronto. The Meeting Intro. House, that's it. The Meeting House, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah their, model, their model, I think, is the, the, the church for people who aren't into church. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. No, I, I, oh, like, I just saw a hand right over here. You're like, can I just do this one? Did you have a hand right a little bit ago? I did. It was, it's, it's actually a reflection okay. of what Marcus just said. Okay. Because uh, have, you, have you thought of um, bringing into the argument the fact that at the heart of the Christian story mm -hmm. is the problem of, I mean, the, the heart of the Christian story is the issue of a twisted religion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what killed Jesus. Mm -hmm. That there was people mm -hmm. who, were, who, who were misguided. Right. Who ended up, who thought that they had the right religion. Yeah. So out of yeah, that right. Right. has come a new religious experience. Right. <coughs> yeah, that's great. You know, so I mean, that's, that's very so well even put. Even at the heart mm -hmm. of Christianity. Really well put. I love, I love that. That's really good. That's a good addition to what we just said here. A second, because that's really true. You think of this, this is the religious leadership that had Jesus crucified for blasphemy. Mm. You see, uh, Eli, yes. Yeah. So along that line, let's suppose that you have a chance to mm -hmm. debate somebody like Sam Harris. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you will someday. Why would you ever consider going straight to the final response? Yeah. Covering everything that you did before that? Maybe, maybe a person should. You, you'd have to be more concise than I was here. You'd have to just pick up key points and go through them quickly. Uh, but it, it, the only reason sometimes I put things last because that's what lingered, lingers in people's mind. You kind of climax the capstone, but but I'm not sure. It, it, it would be hard. It, it, there's a reason to go first with it as well. If you hit them and say, "This is my main thing. I'm going to say. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to say, I'm going to get right back to this again." Okay, that may be what you want to do. Yeah, that's good, Eli. That's a good thought. We are all aware that Eli came to study with us. We worked together. Eli and I worked together for about a good four years or so. <laughs> At uh, Trinity, Eli just completed his PhD of a th three. What? How long? A couple of months ago? A few? Uh, in June. Yeah. June. Okay. The University of uh, Northwest University out in South Africa. So yeah, the Eli guys from the island here. Yeah, hand over here. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to uh, get your reflection uh, as the the moral standing, like the new atheists seem to be coming from, is yeah. that. Uh, is sort of the scientific reduction. Right, right, exactly, uh, precisely. Take our all our morality mm -hmm. and put it through the scientific machine, and <coughs> yeah. that fit in the machine should be yeah. jettisoned. And yeah. just your reflections as a, a Christian scholar uh, of that, like, yeah. um, what um, you know, God endowed us with reasons, and we are supposed to be reasonable uh -huh. people. But like, um, what happens when uh, you push reason to the, this, this extreme? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean. 
It's um, my, I mean, my thought on it has been the same as I've held for for a long time. There's certain things that are within the orbit of science, and certain things that just are not. Okay, there's a. a an astronomer who just died back in 2010, his name was Alex Rex Sandage. I wonder if anybody's heard of him, but he was actually a graduate assistant of Edwin Hubble, you know, the Hubble telescope. And he became a Christian at 60. The, the, the people referred to him as the greatest living astronomer in the world until he died in 2010. At age 60, he became a Christian because he said, there's certain things that science cannot tell us. And then the one of the big one is, is, is the why questions. Why anything's here in the first place, okay? And, and the other thing it really can't tell us is why we should do anything at all. Like it can tell us what will happen in some cases if we do this, okay? And then we would say, well, we all know we don't want to do this or we shouldn't do that. Well, just a minute, you've just imported a moral judgment right there, okay? Uh, someone else might say, uh, it's, it's like this simple example. I sometimes use in my classes for something different actually, but if, if you're sitting around in, in, a, in, a, in a city, the city hall, and you're deciding to developing an, uh, an emergency plan to, to, to transport people out of the heart of the city fast if you ever needed to. And you say, well, look, at those buses normally hold 40 people, but we can get 100 people on those buses if we need to. We can get 150 on them if we really need to, okay? And we can get a lot of people out of here in the city. And someone else might come along and say, well, just a minute. If you pack that many people in those, that many in those buses, people are going to die. Now, that sounds like you have all you need to say, well, that means we shouldn't do it. But you know what? You've just imported a moral judgment that it is bad for people to die. Okay, if your name is Adolf Hitler, and you want those certain people to, to die, then you've just given him a great reason for packing that many people in the buses. Okay, it all depends on, the, see, we sneak these moral judgments in there, and that's what I think the people like Sam Harris are just missing entirely. He did debate William Lane Craig, by the way, on, on, that, on that book, you may know that, Eli. And, uh, and that's what William Lane Cray brought up in a number of different times. That you're sneaking these moral judgments in there, that, we, that all seem, they seem to be so obvious to all of us, but you're sneaking them in there. The question is, where do you get, what kind of foundation do you get for those? Now, something we say, well, we just know that. Well, who is we who just know that? Okay, we who have agreed on certain things. But if someone comes along and says, well, I actually don't agree with that. I take a different point of view. And maybe I've got the power to implement my point of view. On what basis will we ever say, no, no, you ought not to implement that point of view. You ought not to be an Adolf Hitler, you ought to be a Mother Teresa. Based on what? Why? Okay? Science can tell you what will happen if you do this and if you do that. But when it comes to moral foundations, we're, we're, we're at a loss at that point. And, and actually some of the most important things in life are things that extend beyond science's orbit. Like things like value judgments we make in general. Questions about beauty. Uh, relationships that we have, things like that. And we actually had a speaker, I just wish I remember his name right now, he's at Trinity just a few months ago. Uh, and he's from Stanford uh, University, he deals with uh, brain, um, uh, firing neurons in the brain and whatnot, he's a phenomenal researcher. And he took a little while at the beginning of his talk to, to tell us some things that science, questions science can't answer. And he's kind of funny. He says science can't tell you things like, for instance, like being important question like, who should I marry? He had that up on the screen, on the screen. Science can't tell you that, okay? That's a pretty important question. And there's a whole bunch of other questions that science just can't tell you. And it's not, that's not a bad thing about science. That just means science has a certain orbit, a certain area where it, that it works. So that's what I'd be saying about that. that. That's why people do ask questions, what about moral foundations? And if you're not a theist, then you're still searching for some kind of moral foundation. You're searching for something to provide you a basis as to why people should adhere to, to moral foundations or why we should be moral in the first place. 
these are the real deep uh, questions, and philosophers get into them, but others get into them as well. But yeah, um, yeah, Scott, yeah. So I'm just curious how you would respond. I heard Richard Dawkins being being asked that very question. Oh yeah, sure. And his response was, "Stupid question." Like the fact is. Yeah, that we live in a meaningless universe where we right. seek to create meaning. Yeah, but science can't do that. So yeah. stop asking stupid questions. I mean, that, that is, that's his response. That was literally yeah, yeah. his response. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. Why are we here and all that? He would say, "We don't know. We will never know." So you know, get on with life. Yeah. I think mean, he, yeah. he even had a a thing on on the side of buses. He put up a thing saying, "Yeah, right. Like, there probably isn't yeah. a god yeah, now. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your life." Yeah. So just so, enjoy life. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. How, so how do you respond? Well, you know what the my, my response to the question is? For, for, okay, it's nice to see you. Okay. From your point of view, that's exactly right. Yeah. You have no way of getting an answer to that question, yeah. and yet it's, it's 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 one of the most basic and important questions you can ever ask. Yeah. But to say that from your point of view there's no answer doesn't mean there's no answer. Yeah. It just means that from your point of view there's no right. answer. Right. So when he says there's no answer, what he really should be saying is, from my point of view, as an atheist, I have no answer to that question. Yeah. That's what he really, because there are answers that have been put forward. Mm. And the fact is, he still does make moral judgments. Yeah. He makes them. And, 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 uh, uh, and he makes all kinds of things he says about people who, who, who go against them, too. Mm. He, call, he has all kinds of words for people who do things mm. like educate their children to believe in God. Right. He thinks they're doing something wrong, yeah. bad. They're harming those children. It Which is, is a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's making moral judgments. Yeah. Okay. So, so I would, I would just say, from his point of view, he's exactly right, yeah. from his perspective. But, but what that should show you is maybe atheism has a defect here. Mm. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's weak mm. on something where we really need an answer here, mm. and just unable to answer to offer an answer. Mm. So, and that's that's not to, criti to, to criticize an atheist. Great people, some of great people mm. who I know I've met lots of atheists who are atheists. But atheism, as a as a um, mm. way of thinking, has has, has um, you know some, some serious limitations here. Listen, do we need to uh, change anything, uh, uh, Clark? I think that we um, are pretty much at an end. We yeah. Okay. Just to give you a break, and if anyone wants to chat with you, they can sure. do so mm. afterwards. Okay. I just want to thank you. Yeah. Yeah.